Tonight's drama on one is Strutting and Fretting. Written and performed by Chris McCallum. Directed by Connell Morrison. After an unsuccessful tour of Macbeth, the lead actor sits in his dressing room trying to work out where it all went wrong. Balancing his disappointment with a deep appreciation of Shakespeare. With Chris McCallum as James and Jane McGrath as Wendy, this is Strutting and Fretting. This, and what needful else that calls upon us, by the grace of grace, we will perform in measure, time and place. So thanks to all at once and to each one whom we invite to see us crowned at Scombe. Hail, King of Scotland! Unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen of the Macbeth Company, well done on your final performance. Management will have a drink for everyone in the crown. Oh, and I know there was a competition going on to guess the size of the audience, and front of house informed me that tonight it was 34. 11 of which were comps, Wendy. Wendy, there were 11 comps. It's not 34, it's 23. It's 23, Wendy. 415 years. 23 hours. 23 bloody tickets. I'm sorry, Bill, what can I say? You write a play which is a surefire hit for 415 years, we get hold of it and sell 23 tickets. This is what happens, isn't it? If you put together a production of Macbeth and then base all your publicity around the kid playing Malcolm just because he's got a couple of indie movies coming out and the Sunday Times put him on their list of ones to watch. Then, a couple of weeks before you open, the films come out, they both die. It turns out the Sunday Times are really the only ones who want to watch him. You have a four-month tour on your hands for which you cannot now give tickets away. But if you mention any of this... People don't think you're experienced, which I am, or right, which I've been proved. Instead, they just decide that you are twisted or jealous, which is probably fairly accurate as well. But my point is, just because I'm bitter, it doesn't mean I'm wrong. Wendy. Of course, it is possible we're coming at this from the wrong angle. Maybe what we should be saying is not, oh, we put on a 400-year-old play and only 23 people came, but rather, blimey, in the face of all this glamorous competition from Netflix and the Gastro Pub, we put on a 400-year-old play and 23 people came. That probably means 10 or 11 couples, which means that 10 or 11 people got home from work to be asked, we're not doing anything on Saturday night, are we? I've just booked tickets to see a play. And if we imagine that these poor dupes are like us, I think it's also safe to assume that their reaction to this news would be the same as ours. A play? 
Oh, good God. The French surrealist actor and writer Antonin Artaud said that an audience should approach the theatre in the same way that they go to the dentist. With a little fear, perhaps. A certain amount of trepidation. But confident that the experience will prove transformative. This always struck a chord with me, because I always go to see plays as if I were going to the dentist. I only go when I can't get out of it, and I expect my visits to be both painful and expensive. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I have a wall chart of theatrical disappointments. It lists all the dreadful evenings I've spent watching terrible actors ruining horrible plays. And up at the top of the chart is a production of John Osborne's dreadful play, Look Back in Anger, which I saw once performed entirely in Portuguese. Now I should point out that I was in Portugal at the time, so that made a certain sense. The part of the evening that remained a mystery, however, was why it began at half-past eleven on a Friday night, which meant, of course, because John Osborne was not a man given to brevity, that it finished at about quarter-past two on the Saturday morning. Just below that is a production of King Lear. I got to the theatre early, had a couple of drinks in the bar, when an announcement came over the theatre PA to say that that evening the show would run without an interval. Which meant that everything after the blinding of Gloucester was a complete blur. Both for poor Gloucester, of course, and for me as I sat in the middle of a very wide row, thinking, forget how much you need to piss, forget how much you need to piss. And if those shows are up near the top, and right down here, down here at the very bottom, just above not going to the theatre at all, is a Carol Churchill play which was only 20 minutes long. And now that seemed to me to be the perfect length for a play. But I think when our 10 or 11 friends find out that they are going to see Macbeth, they immediately think that their evening is going to go somewhere around the middle of the chart, aren't they? Because Macbeth is generally regarded as a surefire hit. It's got a lot of the elements we would expect to find in a successful piece of theatre. It's quite a simple story. Strong lead characters, both male and female. Very little in the way of subplot. There are quite a few quotes that we recognise. That's always nice, isn't it? Makes us feel a bit clever. No one dresses up as anyone else. And most importantly, there are no twins. And that these things all make it a play that doesn't usually struggle to find an audience. A few years ago, I was in a production of Troilus and Cressida that toured around the country. It was my job to open the show each night with the prologue. Opening night, I walked on in a blackout. And when the lights came up, I started to speak. In Troy, there lies the sea. From isles of Greece, the princes Orgulus, their high blood chafed, have to the port of Athens sent their ships. And I heard this noise. Rustle, 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 coming up from the first few rows. Next night, the same thing. In Troy, there lies the sea. From isles of Greece, there rustle, rustle, rustle. Every night, it started to trouble me. I asked the stage manager to find out what it was. And eventually they came to tell me that the noise I could hear during the first four or five lines of my performance was the sound of people checking their watches. 
I was still using the oxygen from the very first breath of the evening, and already the audience was thinking, oh my God, how long is this going on? But that doesn't happen in Macbeth, because the first characters onto the stage are all witches. There are no bad stories with witches in. You think about it. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, The Wizard of Oz, Wicked, The Crucible. Witches are box office, and Shakespeare knows this. When he started writing, his patron was the Earl of Rutland. But now, in 1606, his patron is the King, James I. James is a man with two main interests in life. The first is witchcraft, and the second is convincing a fairly turbulent society that regicide is a very bad idea. The problem in our production, however, and having seen my fair share of Macbeth's, it is a familiar one, is that the horrors of regicide were slightly undermined, because the character of Duncan, who is king at the start of the play, is so dreary, and the actor chosen to portray him is usually so dull that he's barely on stage for two minutes before the audience are practically passing Macbeth the dagger and saying, what is taking you so long? But Shakespeare's not really interested in Duncan. He's just there to give the audience an idea of the world we're operating in. We learn that Scotland is under attack, that the day the play opens, a Scottish army has fought two victorious battles. We meet Macbeth and Banquo, who've just led Duncan's army, and as they head home, the witches appear and make a series of prophecies, one of which is that Banquo's heirs will one day sit upon the throne, and the other is that Macbeth himself is going to be king. In the stories we heard as children, where good people do good things and bad people get punished, Macbeth would laugh the witches off. He'd probably tell Duncan, guess, guess what happened to us on the way back from battle? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he turns to Banquo, the only other person who knows what the witches told them. And he says, next time we're alone, let us speak our free hearts, each to other. And he writes a letter to his wife. Of course, these days, letters date a play as much as swords or sedan chairs. We don't really write letters anymore. If we were in Macbeth's situation today, we'd, we'd just send a text. Take a selfie, surrounded by dead Norsemen. Killed the King of Norway. Met some witches. They say one day I'll be King of Scotland. LOL. Smiley face. Send. It's funny, you know, because the, the play is called The Tragedy of Macbeth and he's clearly the main character. But nothing really matters until Lady Macbeth comes on. Up until that point, I think... That as an audience, we're still wondering exactly what sort of play we've come to see. We see the court in action, and we think perhaps this is a political play. We hear about these battles, and then we think it may be a play about wars and the military. And of course, we meet these witches. We wonder if this is a play about a confrontation between the Christian world and the forces of darkness. But then Lady Macbeth comes on, and we go, bingo! Suddenly we see this is a domestic tragedy. A play about a husband and a wife and the crap they do to each other behind closed doors. And that's why people have been watching it for 400 years, because in all honesty, very few of us will seriously consider murdering the head of state. Very few of us are ever going to lead an army into battle. And very few of us are going to seriously plan to have a work colleague killed, irritating though they may be. 
but most of us will, at some point in our lives, move in with another person. It's often only when we share our world with someone we value above all others that we get a sense of who we really are. But it's here, having lured us in with this sense of familiarity, that we get our first real glimpse of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, and I think we realise now that they are not the same as us. When I start to work on a character, I always look at those bits of their story that most closely mirror my own. And the stumbling block I had with Macbeth was the whole witches thing. Because, you know, I'm glad to say I've never really been involved with any elements of the occult. And at that point, the thing I do is set aside experience and look instead to imagination. You come across something that's never happened to you, so you just try and imagine the way you would respond if it did. What I was wondering was, what would happen if I was on my way home tonight and a number of witches appeared to me at the bus stop and said, What are you doing here? You should be at home, working on your speech. I think I would be a bit, shall we say, reluctant to engage. But they go on. A year from now, you're going to win an Oscar. You don't want to find yourself standing before the world's press and realise you have nothing to say. Now, if I went home and told my wife this, I think she might say, why do you get into conversation with these people? Or she might go, you know, these things wouldn't happen if you got the dart home like anyone else. But if she went with it, if she seriously entertained the Oscar as a possibility, she might suggest that I could increase my chances by getting a decent haircut. But what I don't think she'd say is, the Oscar, eh? Well, we're going to have to kill Gary Oldman which does seem to be the immediate reaction of Lady Macbeth. In the script of Macbeth, she gets the letter. Her husband explains all about the prophecy. And then she says of him, Glams thou art, and Cawdor, and shalt be what thou art promised. She means you are going to be king. Yet do I fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. She's already thinking this is only going to happen if we kill the king. Then the next scene is Duncan arriving at their house, and then Macbeth and his wife are talking about the plan in terms of where it's going to happen, which is here, and when it's going to happen, which is tonight. And when it seems again that the subject is murder and kingship and slightly medieval concepts like loyalty and hospitality, Shakespeare brings it back to the domestic, and suddenly we're eavesdropping on a conversation that could be taking place across any kitchen table. It is a man and a woman, and all she's doing is reminding him of something he promised to do, and which he has not done. You said you would go through the stuff in the attic. You promised to put those shelves up in the spare room. You told me you were going to kill the king and then seize the throne. Why do you say these things if you have no intention of following through? But screw your courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail. And it's interesting, but as the discussion gets increasingly fraught, it is Macbeth who brings gender into it. He says, I dare do all that may become a man. And the minute he brings that up, the moment he talks about action in terms of sex, he hasn't got a hope. She says, when you durst do it, then you were a man. And this is an argument which has its roots at least 80,000 years before this play was ever written. That's how long it is, since humankind, or something very like 
humankind came shuffling off the plains of Africa and went on to colonize the world. And in all that time, since the days of cavemen, certain things have been demanded of a man and of a woman. Up until that point, we were, as I understand it, all hunter-gatherers. We followed the seasons. We followed herds of animals as they migrated across the Serengeti or the steppes of primordial Russia. And at night we'd sleep under a tree or up a tree or under an overhanging rock, perhaps. And then one day, one man, a man who for the purposes of this conversation we're going to call Ronnie, changed all of that. Now, Ronnie is born a hunter-gathering. But Ronnie is different from his brothers and sisters, different from his friends and neighbours, because Ronnie has an imagination. He's capable of seeing things not simply as they are, but as they might be. In this, of course, he's not unlike Macbeth, who, when he's told that one day he'll be king, doesn't just shrug and say, what are the chances? But rather thinks, OK, then, why not? So Ronnie is hunting and gathering one day. And he and the family are forced to take cover in a cave, sheltering perhaps from a rainstorm or another human group, or maybe hiding from some marauding animal. They wait a little while, and the danger, whatever it is, passes. But while the others start to leave the cave, he doesn't. Ronnie has a moment, and his partner, who we're going to call Elaine, notices. And at the mouth of the cave, she stops and she looks back. Ronnie, love, you're right. But Ronnie doesn't move. Ronnie, come on, we're going. Ronnie just looks at her and he says, Why? And that's it. This is that 2001 moment where the first monkey picks up the bone and batters the other monkey to death with it. He asks, Why are we going? And nothing in human history is going to be quite the same again because Ronnie asks, Why? Why don't we just stay here? And Elaine looks around. This is why I bloody love you, Ronnie. I look into a dirty old cave and all I see is a dirty old cave. But you, you beautiful dreamer, you see a home and a hearth. By this stage, of course, Ronnie is starting to have second thoughts. Of course, we don't have to move into the first cave we see. What? I'm just saying, yes, Ronnie. What are you saying? I'm saying it would be a mistake to rush things. I am prepared, Ronnie, to give up my hunter-gatherer activities to convert a cave into a suitable shelter. You, on the other hand, will provide food for the family and, first and foremost, Locate said shelter. Like you said you would. We're getting a bit carried away here, but you see what I mean. Elaine, like Lady Macbeth 80,000 years later, is saying there are things demanded of women and things demanded of men. In Ronnie's cave, the patriarchy first took root. And 80,000 years later, Lady Macbeth still feels that collar chafing at her throat. She didn't make this world, but she surely knows how it operates. There are things demanded of men, she's saying, and we both know what they are. And of course, every time we ran through the play, this conversation started up in my head. We were playing the scene, and half my mind was in an ill-lit passageway in the bowels of Glam's castle, and the other was in a cave in 
Paleolithic Central Europe. And it was Lady Macbeth who dragged my attention back when she says, I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. And I think that sometimes, with the drama that's unfolding so quickly, an audience can miss that reference. It's just another coloured thread in this extraordinary tapestry of energy and desire. But for the actors, it's always a huge moment in explaining why these two people do the things they do. It's also the only glimpse we get in the whole piece of life before the play begins. And experts have suggested, and when I say experts I mean, of course, people on the internet, that what Lady Macbeth is saying here is that as a young woman, she worked as a wet nurse, breastfeeding the child of a social superior. If she was doing that when she married her husband, Macbeth, a thane, that represents a massive shift in her social standing. Basically, she's gone from serving woman to noble woman in one move. While this may not excuse what she does, it may go some way to explain her hunger. I heard an interview with Michael Caine, and I remember he said, I've been rich and I've been poor, and I know which one I prefer. And maybe Lady Macbeth has seen both sides of that coin too. And it's this that gives her the fire, the desperation the visceral need to hang on at all costs to the position that is now hers and to do whatever it takes to continue that advance. Maybe it's that rage within her that inspires a line like, when you durst do it, then you were a man. I've been doing my job, Lady Macbeth is essentially saying, and now you need to go and do yours. And he does, and when he does, we get what is often referred to as the dagger scene. Macbeth is standing at the door behind which the victim lies sleeping. We learn now that Duncan sleeps with two bodyguards in constant attendance. How paranoid has he become? I went to Trotsky's house in Mexico City and the first thing you notice when you get there is that he'd had all the doorways narrowed and lowered and a step put in. So you couldn't walk from room to room as you usually would but instead had to sort of Slide yourself in from one room to another. The idea being, of course, that when the assassin came, as Trotsky knew one day he would, the man in question wouldn't be able to come running in with a gun in his hand, but would have to stop and sort of post himself into every room, like a piece of unwanted junk mail, giving, in theory at least, Trotsky and his associates time to escape. In the end, of course, the man who killed him didn't crash his way through the front door, but was invited in as a trusted ally, who turned up one day, carrying an ice pick. And it always struck me as, you know, a little unsubtle. If you go around with a hammer, and they say, hey, Ramon, what are you doing with that hammer? You can go, oh, yeah, I've just been fixing the back gate, the dog got out again, and... But an ice pick? How do you explain that away when the nearest snow-capped mountains are the Sierra Madre, which is a four-and-a-half-hour drive? And then, as I say, I went to Trotsky's house. I came out, and there, two blocks away, is Mexico's biggest fish market. Mexico City has no coast, so all its fish arrives on trucks packed in ice. Everyone around there carries an ice pick. You would stand out if you weren't carrying one. In terms of his personal safety, Trotsky would have been better off living next door to a firework factory. And on the subject of fireworks, or perhaps 
damp squibs. You cannot be in or watch a production of Macbeth without eventually coming face to face with the porter scene. The first thing we have to acknowledge, though, is that Shakespeare could write comedy. I've seen productions of Twelfth Night and Comedy of Errors that were laugh-out-loud funny. The porter scene is not his finest hour. In most productions, the only way the porter scene could be less funny would be if the actor playing the role could somehow speak his lines and simultaneously reverse his car over a dog. The truth is it's not a great part and it's hard to get a really good actor to play it. What usually happens is someone of around my age goes up for the show and having heard that the lead is already cast, they set their sights a little lower and they think they might have a shot at at McDuff or Banquo. McDuff's quite good because he's got a couple of big scenes and a sword fight. And Banquo is also quite good because he's sort of the sacrificial lamb and everyone likes him. And the best bit about Banquo, of course, is that he's dead by the interval. Which leaves you the whole of the second half to sit in your dressing room and work on your embroidery or your drink problem or maybe write yourself a nice little one-man show if you're one of those self-indulgent, knobby, no-mate kind of actors who goes in for that sort of nonsense. The real problem with the porter, of course, is that you've only got one scene and it's there for one reason and one reason only and that is to allow the actors playing Macbeth and his wife to get cleaned up after the dagger scene which usually finishes with them covered in blood. Everyone knows this. And if by some chance the actor playing the porter has somehow managed to go through his whole career without hearing it, some helpful sod will point it out at the read-through. So you now have to go on stage, work through 35 lines of fairly terrible dialogue, knowing that you're only out there in the first place to keep the audience occupied while the leads get to work with the baby wipes. But anyway, eventually, thankfully, the porter takes his leave, and we have Macbeth wearing the crown. He is now King of Scotland. He has got everything he dreamed of. He's had the throne reupholstered as an ensuite in the guest wing. He's happy. His wife is happy. And of course it lasts for about 15 minutes. Bob Dylan wrote, When you ain't got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. And this could be Macbeth. Up until this point, he has had nothing to lose. But now he has the throne. He's always known it was worth killing for, but now he starts to ask himself, is it worth dying for? And primarily what he gets to thinking about are the witches and their prophecy. He gets to thinking about Banquo. They hailed him father to a line of kings. Upon my head they placed a fruitless crown. He realises now that if the witches are correct, and so far they have been, then he's killed Duncan and damned himself to hell for no other purpose than to put Banquo's descendants onto the throne. And in exactly the same way that husband and wife decided so quickly that Duncan had to go, now Macbeth decides immediately on another course of action. And this one is kill Banquo and his son Fleance. I'm not sure, but I wonder if it's fair if we start to think around now that perhaps Macbeth is not very good at this. That maybe this whole psychotic king routine doesn't really come naturally to him. Look at a couple of Shakespeare's other great villains. Look at, at Richard III, perhaps, or Iago. These are terrible people who do terrible things. You may not approve of them politically, but you do have to salute their efficiency. Macbeth, on the other hand, manages only to make things harder for himself. He kills Duncan, but 
Duncan's sons, Malcolm and Donald, may escape to plan their revenge. He has Banquo, who is no real threat killed, but Flayance, who is actually the stone in his shoe, escapes. And then he goes after Macduff. The witches have already said, none of woman born shall harm Macbeth, and he thinks fine. But then just to be on the safe side, he sends the boys round to kill Macduff's wife and children, which does nothing but turn Macduff from a vague and distant threat into this furious avenging angel. Front to front bring thou this fiend of Scotland and myself. Within my sword's length set him. If he escape, heaven forgive him too. This tune goes manly. Come, go we to the king. Our power is ready, our lack is nothing but our leave. Macbeth is ripe for shaking, and the powers above put on their instruments. Receive what cheer you may. The night is long that never finds the day. There is a theory which suggests that subconsciously Adolf Hitler wanted to lose the Second World War because he wanted to punish the German people for what he saw as their betrayal of the German army at the end of the First World War. Now, the whole idea of the subconscious is, as far as I know, a fairly recent concept, which means, of course, that Shakespeare and his contemporaries would not have knowingly given their characters a subconscious motivation, but it doesn't mean they couldn't have had one. In exactly the same way that people were affected by the laws of gravity long before the published work of Isaac Newton. And as the play moves now with increasing drive towards its bloody conclusion, Macbeth's self-destructive urges do seem to come worryingly to the fore. And while we're on the subject of self-destructive urges, it is probably time to talk about Toby. Toby is our friend who played Malcolm, the movie star, much admired by someone or other at the Sunday Times. Now I take the mickey out of him, but he's a, he's a very sweet kid and he was a very good Malcolm. But it does make you wonder what they teach them at drama school these days. Because he did, with an astonishing mixture of vanity and naivety, break the first and possibly the most important rule in the touring actor's handbook, because he went off and he slept with the stage manager, the lovely Wendy. And when that relationship failed to make it past the second week of rehearsals, Wendy comforted herself by breaking another fundamental rule and slept with a thane. Lennox or, or Ross or Tinky Winky or someone. This is against the rules because as everyone, even the actors playing Lennox or Ross or Tinky Winky knows, nobody sleeps with a thane. The minute your agent rings you and says, the Macbeth people have been on, they've offered you Lennox. It's exactly the same if it's the player king in Hamlet or Guildenstern or any character called Lodovico. You know that when you take that job, you are not going to get laid. A theatrical company is stratified and subdivided with a rigidity which is every bit as formal and unforgiving as a medieval court. The court of medieval Scotland, for instance. So half the company stopped talking to, to the actors and the other half stopped talking to stage management and what could have been a slightly disappointing tour carried off with goodwill instead became an exercise in damage limitation. But of course, if you tell people that you're in Macbeth and that it is not all going according to plan, nobody is surprised. 
because the one thing everyone knows about the play is that it is apparently cursed. So malign is its influence thought to be that many actors don't even like to say its name, preferring to call it the Scottish play. The root of the curse is apparently that the text we work from is a version of Shakespeare's original script with revisions made by the Jacobean playwright Thomas Middleton. I heard Middleton referred to as the Tudor Tarantino. Now I imagine that the comparison was because of the blood-soaked nature of the work that both Tarantino and Middleton are known for. But I think it is also fair because both men clearly think rather a lot of themselves. We can see that Quentin Tarantino has no shortage of self-regard when we realise that all his films are 45 minutes too long. And we know that Middleton thinks fairly highly of himself because here he is, rewriting Shakespeare. The story is that Middleton sort of sexed up the witches' scenes by adding, among other things, lines taken from a genuine satanic liturgy. This means that every time the play is performed, these prayers are again offered up, and whatever malign influence they create is brought to the theatre or whatever space is being used for the production. Now we have to remember that at that time following this religion was a capital crime. You could be arrested and then thrown into a lake, and the only thing you could do to prove your innocence was drown. And I wondered why, given the price of discovery, any practising witch would agree to help Middleton with his rewrites. And really, the only scenario that really worked was that maybe this woman helped Middleton in the hope that he might persuade Jacobean society to be a little more understanding, a little more open to their culture. And if that was why a witch or witches agreed to help, then I can quite understand why the finished piece might leave them feeling a little let down. And if Middleton had sent this witch a couple of tickets for opening night... I would certainly expect her to wait for him in the bar with a very large bee in her very tall and black and very, very pointy bonnet. And Middleton would be all, so, tell me honestly, what did you think? And we all know you never answer a question honestly on opening night. But for our witch, it's a successful evening if she can just get home without being set on fire. She doesn't know anything about theatre etiquette. She'd just be straight in with, there's a few technicalities I thought you might explain to me. Oh? If a person wanted the finger of a birth strangled babe, which, by the way, I never have, would they have to buy the old babe, or do you suppose the vendor might sell it off piece by piece as required? Well, to be honest, I, I never really thought that through. No, I didn't think you had. What about these tartar's lips? How would you separate them, I wonder, you know, from the rest of the tartar? Well, I imagine he'd be dead to start with. Oh, so he's dead as well, is he? So we've got the dead baby the dead Tartar, and we'll put the blaspheming Jew in there too, shall we? As a kind of job lot. If he's not dead to start off with, he will be by the time we've taken his liver out anyway. Now, we'll never know for sure whether Thomas Middleton ever met a practising witch, but I think, in a post-fact world, we can all agree that if they ever did have a conversation, then that's exactly how it would have gone. The truth is, of course, that all these curse stories emerged when actors kept getting injured or stabbed or occasionally even killed during productions of the play. When things like that happen, people look for explanations. And theatre folk being, let's face it, a little more theatrical, are sometimes prone to accept a more dramatic interpretation. The truth is slightly more mundane. Because, of course, people get hurt doing Macbeth. But they also get hurt performing Hamlet and Coriolanus, 
and Henry the Fourth, Part Two. None of these other plays have any associations with the occult, and none of them were revised by Thomas Middleton. But any production of them will bring together a heady combination of testosterone, adrenaline, and light weaponry. I've never heard of anyone being stabbed in a production of A Doll's House. This is not because the actors don't get nervous. It's because Ibsen didn't put any swords in it. and we're straight into Lady Macbeth's out-damned spot. And then her death. And then, like a postcard from a desert, comes tomorrow, and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, he's actually quite good. He may be a bit full of himself. When the chips are down, there's no doubting he can act. And of course, I'd like to take the credit. But the truth is, the truth that no one wants to tell you is, that speeches like this practically perform themselves. Ten minutes, ladies and gentlemen. We will be locking up in ten minutes. I'm going as fast as I can, Wendy. You can always tell when a Jacobean tragedy is coming to its end. The body count goes through the roof and the stage starts to fill with characters you haven't seen since the end of Act Two. And now, as this play heads towards its blood-soaked conclusion, we get a sense that the whole story has turned full circle. And once again we have a Scottish king fighting for his throne. But this king is not like Duncan. He doesn't have generals like that to go out and fight his battles for him and he's holed up in his castle with the last few remnants of his cream-faced rabble when news comes in that 10,000 English soldiers are coming over the hill. And I was sitting at home one night, pretending to learn my lines, but I had the TV on, and Taxi Driver was showing. And you remember that extraordinary diary that Travis Bickle keeps? There was a line from it that, that struck a chord, and I, I, I wrote it down. All my life has been heading in one direction. I see that now. And of course, Macbeth's life has been heading in one direction too and that was towards that final confrontation with Macduff. And suddenly here they are, facing one another across the room, literally at daggers drawn. And when they are finally face to face, Macbeth tells his rival of the witch's prophecy that no man of woman born shall harm Macbeth. And Macduff tells him, in turn, that he was from his mother's womb untimely ripped. And the minute he hears this, Macbeth might as well drop his sword onto the floor. He's finished. And every time we played that scene, the same thought came to me. That if Macduff had said that in Act One, Macbeth would have gone, and your point is? So you were born by Caesarean. Your mother was still a woman. She wasn't a camel or a whale or some sort of winged beast, was she? But by Act Five, he can't say that. 
because he knows it's already over. And it, it struck me at this point that Macbeth is a Christian king. The play was written by a Christian writer and watched by an audience, which in its early years at least, would have been almost exclusively Christian. I say this only because Christians believe in sin and redemption. And it's this cycle which I think Macbeth realises now he is trapped in. He has sinned, terribly and many times. And he knows redemption can only come by performing penance. Sin, penance, redemption. That's how it goes. And the only penance that can redeem Macbeth is his own death. Only by sacrificing his life can Macbeth hope for redemption. The question earlier on was, will Macbeth die? The question now is simply, how? And at this stage, he doesn't even pray. He's too proud or too stubborn to fall on his knees now. What does he say? I will not yield to kiss the ground before young Malcolm's feet. Shakespeare understands his audience. He knows we need Macbeth punished, but we don't want him humiliated. Macbeth never lied to us. He never denied what he was. He never tried to excuse what he did. Macbeth told us his story and hid nothing. So Shakespeare allows him to go out on his own terms. And when he dies, he dies a hero's death, fighting a battle that he knows he cannot win. And I realise that Macbeth's death brings us back again to this need for defeat, this cycle of sin and redemption. And I thought maybe I have made a genuine discovery. I've been in the play now. I, I can't imagine how often I've read it. And in getting ready for this, I read a lot around the play. But I never saw anyone picking up on this angle. You know, fresh insights are very hard to come by. But it seemed to me that almost by accident, that's what I had found. A new way of looking at the play, maybe a new way of looking at Shakespeare too. And you know, it began to occur to me that maybe this could be my thing. If I take this thought and turn it into an article, and then if there's a decent reaction, maybe I'd turn it into a two-page spread in one of the Sundays. Get a series on BBC Two, walking around Crusader castles in a long coat. Maybe I can be one of those go-to guys, you know, who, who get called up whenever they need a talking head. Go on arts programmes and talk loudly and passionately about things, hoping that volume and enthusiasm might mask the fact that I have nothing really to say. Blimey, if the last 45 minutes have proved anything, surely it's that that's what I was born to do. And then, of course, I realised, somewhat disappointingly, that no, this wasn't going to work, because what I thought of as a discovery wasn't about Shakespeare, wasn't about Macbeth at all. It was really about me. About how I ended up in a show like this one. And I think the story goes like this. I was approached one night by a pointy-faced old woman with a croaky voice and long, thin fingers. James, she said. You have to remember this woman can not only see the future, but can also change it. In some cultures, they may call her a witch. In the world I come from, we call her a casting director. James, would you like to play Macbeth? And I opened my mouth and the word yes went out. And as it went, the fear came rushing in. And as I see it, the fear is like a, a tear in the landscape, like a, a ravine. It's a gap between what the show could be, which of course is fantastic, and what you think the show will be, which of course is a bit crap. 
You're standing on one side of that ravine looking across at the other, and the idea is that you use your talent, your imagination, your work, to try to bridge that gap. And there are two ways of doing that. The first is to be brilliant. And you tried that, didn't you? Yes. Yes, I did. It didn't really work, though, did it? No. It didn't work. So the other way to bridge that gap is to go into a production which is already crap, where no matter how poor your performance may be, nobody will notice. You put yourself into a production like this one, a production which is going to be a bit rubbish, whatever you do. But that level of cowardice, that lack of faith, that sort of self-harm, does have a price. And every night as I came off stage, I saw their faces as I made for the dressing room. The faces of all the recently dead, David Bowie and Victoria Wood and Prince and Amy Winehouse. And they said, you idiot, why wouldn't you at least try, try to do something? What wouldn't we give for one last go? Even if it was just another chance to mess up. I do know, by the way, that such is the cruel and capricious nature of the theatre gods that if in ten years or so another production of Macbeth comes touring around the country, I will of course be in it, and I will be playing the porter, and I will in my career drifting around like some abandoned Soviet satellite. But I'll tell you one thing, I'd get more laughs than any of those other miserable old sods. What's the first line? Here's a knocking indeed. If a man were porter of Hellgate, he should have old turning the key. Knock, knock, knock. Who's there? Chalk it down. 1606. The world's first knock-knock joke. We couldn't even make that work. Don't get me started. Wendy! Are we going for this drink? That was Strutting and Fretting, written and performed by Chris McCallum, directed by Connell Morrison. Chris McCallum played James, and Jane McGrath played Wendy. The radio version was adapted from the stage production directed by Michael James Ford. The play also featured excerpts from the RTE Players production of Macbeth, featuring Kate Minogue as Lady Macbeth, Daniel Reardon as Macduff, and Jim Reed as Malcolm. Special thanks to Rob Canning and the team in RTE Radio Archives. Sound supervision was by Ruth Kennington and Gar Duffy. Strutting and Fretting by Chris McCallum was produced by Kevin Brew. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. To listen back to Strutting and Fretting and over 100 plays in the RTE archive, go to rte.ie forward slash drama on one. rte.ie 
forward slash drama on one.